0: The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, we have to get right to it. We have a lot of work today, Uh, a lot of work to do. Um, Here in Romans 9, we've reached a point of significant tension. We began talking about that last Week. You, you'll remember that the letter, Paul's letter to the Romans began in chapter 1 with this. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The gospel, the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then in the 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 chapter immediately preceding chapter 9, chapter 8, ended with Paul saying that nothing can separate God's people from his love for them in Christ. The power of God for salvation, for the Jew first, also the Greek. Nothing can separate God's people from his love for them in Christ. Well, that then brings us to the point of tension here in chapter 9, what what Pastor Todd last week referred to as the elephant in the room. And the point of tension is this. In light of all of this, in light of Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8, how could it be that a great number of Jews have rejected the gospel and been cut off how could it be that a great number of jews have been separated from christ in disbelief how could this be if the gospel was for the jew first how could this be if if the jews were after all god's chosen people they were god's chosen people weren't they And can you imagine how this tension would have been amplified in the Roman church? A church made up of both Gentile and Jewish believers, both Jews and non-Jews, all professing the same Christ. Well, in in Romans 9, the Apostle Paul addresses this tension head on, and, and he as he does, the main idea that he wants to get across to the church in Rome, but, but also to the church in Lincoln, Nebraska, is this, God is faithful and in sovereign control of the salvation of his people. God is faithful and in sovereign control of the salvation of his people. And in our passage, Paul is going to address three potential objections or questions that one might have in the midst of this tension in light of Paul's Jewish kinsmen having been cut off from Christ in disbelief. The the, the first question, which we'll find in verse 6 if we want to signpost this, the first question found in verse 6 has to do with God's capability of fulfilling the promises that he has made to his people? Is is God, in the word of God, is his gospel actually capable of delivering on the promises that he has made? Can Can he cash the checks that he's written? The second two questions coming in verse 14 and verse 19 then have to do with God's character. Okay, assuming he's able to deliver on his promises, is this a God that we can trust? Is he good? Is he righteous? Is he just? And so we're going to take these questions or objections one at a time, and as we do, Paul's going to have something to say about God and his work of salvation. The first thing he's going to tell us is, is about God's purpose in salvation as he answers that first question. God's purpose in salvation. Secondly, as he answers this question in verse 14, he's going to tell about God's freedom in salvation. And then lastly, in verses 19 through 29, he's going to tell us about God's glory in salvation. And so we're going to spend the vast majority of our time working carefully through this text. As you might have gathered, as Brad was reading to us. This is this is a challenging this is a challenging text. And so we're we're gonna we're gonna work our way through um, carefully and then at the end we'll make some points of, of application. And so let's let's dive into that first question as we as we take a look at God's purpose in salvation. Now in, in many ways all of Romans 9 revolves around our first question in verse 6, which Paul actually doesn't phrase as a question. So again, how how could it be that many Jews, so many Jews, God's people are cut off from Christ in disbelief? The question is, is, is this. Have have, has God's word failed? Has the good news of the gospel proven to be not all that good of news after all? This is the first objection that Paul addresses. You, you see, maybe God wasn't able to make good on his promises. Maybe his word is, is impotent in bringing about the fulfillment of those promises. Maybe the gospel that Paul is preaching to us isn't actually the power of God for salvation. Paul is clear. He's clear that this isn't the case. And he answers by saying the promise was never that all Jews would be saved. Listen to this, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, not all of Israel is what we would call true Israel. Israel has a subset inside of it that we might call true Israel. And then in a, a parallel statement, he says that not all of Abraham's offspring are true. Spiritual children of Abraham, and then he gives us a bit of a, a, a Bible lesson. Look, there are there are more than ten quotations from Old Testament texts in this in this this passage of Scripture. We're going to do our best to. To unpack those as, as needed. But uh, the, the, the first Bible lesson, uh, history lesson that he gives us, uh, has to do with Isaac and Ishmael back in Genesis 21, verse 12. We see this at the end of verse 7, where Paul says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then down in verses 10 through 12, he's going to give us a second Bible lesson using Jacob and Esau. But let's start with the first, Isaac and Ishmael. Now, Abraham was a father of both Isaac and Ishmael. And what we need to know is all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord appears to Abraham, then known as Abram, and he makes this magnificent promise to him. His promise is this, that your offspring, Abraham, will become a great nation and i will give that nation land and i will bless you and through this through this nation through your offspring i will bless all the families of the earth through this nation all nations on the earth will receive blessing in genesis 15 we read and We read about this in in Romans chapter 4, in Genesis 15. We read that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's just one problem. The problem was this. Abraham and his wife Sarah were old. And they were unable to conceive children. Despite the fact that the Lord assured Abraham that his very own son would be his heir, Abraham and Sarah decided to take matters into their own hands. You see, they just couldn't fathom, given their age, given Sarah's barrenness, they couldn't fathom how God might possibly bring about the fruition of his promises. And so, Sarah has a plan. She tells Abraham to have a child with her Egyptian servant, Hagar, which he did. And they called this child Ishmael. Some years later, as promised, the Lord visited Sarah, opened her womb, and she conceived and gave birth to a son, Isaac. Well, that brings us to the quoted passage here from Genesis 21. Sarah's not all that keen on the plan anymore that involves Hagar and Ishmael. And so she actually tells Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, which upsets, understandably, I think, Abraham. Ishmael is his son. And this is what the Lord says to Abraham in response. Genesis 21, 12, But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy. And because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. Good marriage advice, right? But the reason he says that is this for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Do as Sarah says. Send Ishmael away, because it's not through him that my promises to you will be fulfilled, but rather through your son Isaac. And you see, there's, there's a difference between these two sons. One son, Ishmael, was born naturally. What I mean by that is he's, he was conceived the way all children are conceived, according to the flesh accomplished in a sense through the efforts of man and woman. Contrast this with the other son, Isaac, who was born through the promise and the miraculous supernatural intervention of God. He was a blessing of God's grace. And as Paul explains back in our passage in Romans 8, Romans 9, rather, in verse 8, he says this. This means, this means that it is not children of the flesh who are children of God. It is not the children of the flesh that are the children of God, drawing a, a line from children of the flesh to Ishmael, but the children of the promise, the children of the line of Isaac, are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, "About this time next year, I, I will return, and Sarah will have shall have a son. You see, that not all Jews have been saved is not evidence that the word of God has failed. God made a distinction between Isaac, a child of the promise, and Ishmael, a child of the flesh. His promises don't belong to all of Israel, do they? Just true Israel. His promises belong only to the children of the promise. That that brings us now to the second Bible lesson, Jacob and Esau, which serves only to make Paul's case stronger. Paul writes, and not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, this is a familiar name, Abraham's son, though they were not yet born and and, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You see, the the problem with our first example with Ishmael and Isaac is there are some potential loopholes. There are some potential loopholes. For example, one might point at these two boys and say, well, they had different mothers. Of course, one was chosen over the other. And and, and frankly, Ishmael's mother wasn't a Jew. She, She wasn't even Abraham's wife. It makes sense then that Isaac would be chosen. He was the more worthy option. Isaac wasn't born until around 13 years old for Ishmael. So Ishmael had over a decade of life. And so look, maybe Ishmael, through his own actions and works, just proved himself to be an unworthy candidate as the child of the promise. But you see, with Jacob and Esau, we have twins. They're twins, which means they have the same father and the same mother, as Paul points out. We can infer then that they came from the same womb, born at nearly the same time. They grew up in the same environment and so on and so forth. And we're told that before they were born, before they had done anything Good or bad, anything worthy or unworthy of promise, the Lord chose the younger brother to be the one through whom the blessing of his promise would be passed down. Incredible. And this goes against a grain of tradition. Typically, this would have been, it would have been the older. So what then? How or why was Jacob chosen over Esau? Was this just an arbitrary decision? Is God throwing darts at a dartboard or rolling a couple of dice? Maybe flipping a coin? Maybe he put both names in a hat? Had someone, maybe Rebecca, draw one of the names out? Verse 11 tells us, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. The choice was made according to God and according to God's purpose. God's purpose of election, according to and because of God. According to His sovereign purposes, God calls and chooses according to His perfect will. Not according to our works, not according to our will, not according to our worthiness, not according to anything that is inherent in you or in me. That brings us to this interesting quotation from Malachi chapter 1 and verse 13 of of, of Romans 9. Here's the quote, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now again this comes from Malachi chapter 1 let me read chapter or I'm sorry verses 2 through 4 to you I have loved you says the Lord but you say how have you loved us So it's it's interesting right because I think that the people are asking a question here of the prophet Malachi that's similar to the question that Paul is wrestling with and dealing with here in Romans 9 But you say, how have you loved us? And then this is the Lord's response. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. And if Edom says, that is, the people of Esau, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. In this passage, we see that Esau's heritage, his his people have been destroyed. And and the Lord says, look, if they get together and come up with a plan for, for reconstruction, I'll tear them down again and again and again and again forever. Now, it's, it's important to know that Malachi's ministry came after Jerusalem and the first temple had been destroyed and sacked by the Babylonians. After God's people had been carried off into captivity. The scripture is really clear about this. All of this, just like the destruction of Eden, Edom, Esau's country, was, was fully destroyed. This was the Lord's righteous judgment against his people. Something prophet after after prophet after prophet had been sent to warn God's people about. So back back to our our verse here. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What does this mean? Well, Malachi is what we call a a second temple prophet meaning that his ministry came after not just the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, but after Jerusalem and the temple had been rebuilt and his people had begun to return home. In other words, Malachi writes to the chosen people of God who had been chosen in love and allowed to rebuild. Jacob I have loved. You see, despite the fact that their destruction and exile was just judgment from the Lord, the Lord mercifully preserved His people and allowed them to return. In His mercy, He raised them from the ashes and extended forgiveness to them. Contrast this with the Edomites, Esau, I have hated. Their destruction was also just judgment from the Lord. But Edom will never be allowed to rebuild. They will not be preserved. And with righteous anger, the Lord will oppose them forever. And this was all determined. Not according to anything either had done, nor according to anything that they deserve. Remember, they both deserve the exact same thing. It was determined long before. Romans 9, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Jacob was chosen in love, elected to receive God's mercy. That much of Israel was cut off from Christ in disbelief. It's not evidence that the word of God has failed. You see, the word of God and his gospel, they never fail. Rather, it's evidence of God's choosing according to the purpose, his purpose in salvation. And that's true of you too, Christian if you belong to Christ by faith, then you too were chosen in love. Listen to me, before the foundation of the world, before you'd done anything good or bad, the Lord chose you, elected you in love to receive mercy in Christ, undeserved mercy in Christ. Christ. But look, this, this brings us to another question, another potential objection, which brings us to our second point. As we see God's freedom in salvation, we now move from the, the ability, the, the capability of God in His Word to keep His promises now to Paul's going to address the, the character and righteousness of God Who makes these promises? Paul moves now to a a question and answer format. He says this, verse 14. What should we say then? Is there injustice? Your translation might use the word unrighteousness here. Is there injustice? Is there unrighteousness on God's part? Again, Paul's answer is swift and decisive. By no means, he says... Is it unjust that God would choose to make a distinction between Israel and true Israel, between Isaac and Ishmael, between Jacob and Esau, between children of the flesh and children of the promise? A choice not based on works of the people, but upon the sovereign purposes of of him who chose? Paul's answer here is clear and emphatic, no. There is no injustice. And I think to understand why is to understand something about the nature of mercy. And this is how, this is how Paul answers. The question comes to him and, and, and the asker of the question wants to know about justice. And Paul, Paul responds in terms of mercy. For he says to Moses, verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This quotation comes from Exodus 33, which is immediately after the golden calf incident. Are you familiar with the golden calf incident? After a series of of 10 brutal plagues, the Lord led his people out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, into the wilderness. And they eventually arrived at Mount Sinai, where the Lord gave his law to Israel, his people, and entered into a covenant with them. And God's people said in response to this covenant. Listen to these naive words. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, Moses returns from hanging out with the Lord on the mountain, and he comes down to see the people of God who said all that the Lord has commanded, has spoken, we will do. He returns to see the people of God doing what? But worshiping and sacrificing to a golden calf, a golden calf that they had formed with their very own hands. As one, as I've heard one pastor say, this is akin to committing adultery on your honeymoon. You might even say this is akin to committing adultery on your wedding night. Afterward, Moses meets with the Lord again and he, he pleads with the Lord on behalf of his people. And it's during this conversation that the Lord speaks these words to Moses. Exodus thirty-three nineteen, 19, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. You see, by definition, mercy is something that we are all 100% completely undeserving of. When it comes to issues of mercy and condemnation, though, it's not uncommon for us as human beings to develop an attitude of entitlement. Man's problem ever since the Garden of Eden when the serpent promised Eve that the fruit would make you like God, would make the woman like God, man's problem since then has been that he he has an inflated view of himself. This This is an attitude that says, I deserve mercy. God owes me mercy. And if Mercy is deserved, brothers and sisters. The asker of the question, the the objectioner here in verse 14 is right. If mercy is deserved, then to withhold it is an act of injustice. But mercy isn't what Israel deserved. And it's not what we deserve in our sin either. We deserve the very opposite, judgment and condemnation. And this changes the equation. this changes the math completely. Romans 9:16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, God isn't dependent upon human will or human uh, exertion. The word here means literally running or striving. God isn't dependent upon human accomplishment or public opinion. When it comes to acts of mercy, God is completely and absolutely free in his choice to extend undeserved mercy to whomever he chooses. And the same can be said of his choice to condemn and to harden. Verse 17 For the scripture says, To Pharaoh. It's interesting that he says, the scripture says to Pharaoh, and not the Lord says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Here we see the Lord's words to Pharaoh in Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus 9. He tells Pharaoh that he has raised him up for this purpose to be an object of his judgment. Put on display for the entire earth to see and to watch and to behold. And look, the the Lord telegraphed that he was going to do this all the way back in Exodus chapter four. Before we read even once that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, the Lord told Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Why would the Lord do this? Exodus 9, it tells us it was in order that the Lord might show his power in and through Pharaoh, that the Lord's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, ultimately, the Lord is committed to his own name, to his own glory, and to making these things known. And you might say, whoa, that's a little prideful, puffed up, and arrogant. Not if you're actually worthy of all honor, all glory, and all praise. We've never heard another human being outside of Jesus Christ our Lord demand glory who is actually worthy of it. So we have a skewed frame of reference. And so was the Lord unjust in hardening Pharaoh's heart? No. No, Pharaoh deserved condemnation and judgment because of his own sin against God and against the people of God. And so instead of saving him from his own sin, God gave him over to it. Similarly, we read in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Three times we read about God giving a people over to their passions. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, sealing his faith, sealing his faith as an instrument of his wrath. One pastor, Christopher Ashe, explains it this way. He says that when God hardens a heart, this doesn't necessarily change the situation of the human being. Listen to that. I, I, I don't have it. I'm not quoting it exactly, so it's not in the slides. But uh, when God hardens the heart of a man or a woman, He doesn't necessarily change the situation of the human being. The situation of the human being continues, remains the same, just as it always was. He leaves them or gives them over to who they are. Mercy, on the other hand, mercy, on the other hand, completely changes the situation of a human being. Paul summarizes this point in verse 18. says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Look, I think the question that Paul would have us ask here, I think he might have us slow down, take a few moments to ponder, to meditate upon the question, not of why only some are saved and not others, but rather I think the question that he would have us ponder is this. Why would God save anyone at all? Why would he save anyone at all? None of us deserve it. Why would he save you? Why would he save me? Why why would he save us? This, I think, is the posture that Romans 9 would have us assume before God. The Lord is free to save as an act of undeserved mercy. And he is free to condemn and harden as an act of deserved justice. That brings us to the third and final point, God's glory and salvation. And the third and final objection that Paul addresses. And this one's a little saltier than the first two. You will say to me then, verse 19, why does he still find fault? Why does he still find fault? How can God still find fault? Because who can resist his will? We've just read that God is free to extend mercy or free to harden and condemn. How can he still find fault? Who can resist this God? If God is sovereign over the will of human beings, human beings such as Pharaoh, human beings such as, unbelieving Israel, then how can the Lord still find fault and hold them accountable? I I want to be clear here that the sovereignty of God in salvation doesn't eliminate human responsibility for sin, nor does it eliminate man's need to repent of his sin and profess faith in Christ. It's important for us to remember Romans 9 happens to be right next to Romans 10. And so you're going to want to show up next week. But Paul gives a definitive answer to this protest. Verse 20, he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This phrase to answer back makes it clear that the question that was asked before is not an honest question of faith, but rather it's it's a dispute. It's, It's a question that tends to be in opposition. This is a clap back. If you will. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? By the way, the, the clapback is a question. Paul has his own clapback. Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Well, this brings to mind, though it's not a direct quotation, it brings to mind uh, verses like this from Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 16. The prophet says, "You you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who fored it, formed it, He has no understanding. This is the ultimate. God is God, and man is not moment moment, I think in, in Romans chapter nine. Because Paul does what the prophet Isaiah does here in Isaiah chapter. 29, he he shines light on the absurdity of the creation clapping back and criticizing the work of its creator. It's like a clay vase or a clay pot saying to its maker, this guy didn't make me. It's like a clay vase or a, a clay pot saying to its maker, she doesn't know what she's doing. Now, when Paul talks about the potter's right to make vessels for honorable and dishonorable use, he he surely has Israel and Pharaoh in mind. But we, we definitely can't forget where this all started. All right? So he definitely has Pharaoh in mind. But we, we can't forget where all of this started. It, it started with the rejection of the gospel by unbelieving Jews. And look, it, here's the thing that that we need to wrestle with not in our minds but in a heart in our hearts at, at a heart level. And that is this that, that Paul is being very clear here. Paul's not giving up any ground, he's not making any compromises. He's He's not even making apologies for his theology here. And his point is this. God is free to show his undeserved mercy to some and to save them. Just as he is also free and just, and just to harden others. Handing them over to unbelief and destruction. The question now is why? Why? Why would God do this? What purpose could this possibly serve? Verse 22 of Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. These verses have kind of an echo of, of verse 17, where we saw that it is through the vessels of wrath, those who, like Pharaoh, reject God and refuse to repent, those who bear guilt and reject Jesus and his gospel, those who have at the same time been sovereignly prepared for and handed over for destruction. Those like unbelieving Israel. Those who, like Pharaoh, have had their hearts hardened. But also those with whom the Lord has endured with great patience, Paul says. Think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh and the countless opportunities that the Lord gave him to repent and to turn from his sin. It is through these vessels of wrath that God makes his power known. That his name and his glory may be proclaimed in all the earth. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't stop there like he did in verse 17, because that's not all. Praise God, that's not all. Christian. It's through those vessels of wrath who reject the gospel that the Lord makes his glory known to vessels of mercy. That he makes his power and might known to vessels of mercy. It's through these vessels of wrath that he makes the magnitude of his mercy known to his vessels of mercy, that he makes his love known to vessels of mercy, that he makes his goodness of the good news of the gospel known to vessels of mercy. Pastor John Piper captures this so well, as John Piper tends to do. He says the ultimate purpose of the universe is that vessels of mercy would see the glory of God and the riches of his glory, including wrath, including power, and that they would participate in that glory and would be glorified by that glory when they have zero desert of it, but are sovereignly and freely made fit for it by bringing them to repentance and faith. That means you, Christian. That means you too. In order that you might behold the glory of God shown to you in the redemptive work of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And then in in chapter, or I'm sorry, verse 24, Paul says this, even us, whom he has called Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, in in verse 24, he's, he's saying that even us, we are vessels of mercy. The question is who is the us? And Paul, being a Jew, writing about the exclusion of some Jews, I would think that the us refers to the Jews. The problem is, though, is that he says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So then the us includes the Jews, but the us also includes the Gentiles. And so what I think the us in verse 24 does is it takes us all the way back to verse 6 of Romans chapter 9 you see now because of God's glorious plan of redemption and salvation now both Jew and Gentile are children of the promise Both Jew and Gentile belong to true Israel. And that means, and this is good news, to a room comprised largely of Gentiles, that means that the Gentiles have been included as children of the promise. And that also means that all of the promises that the Lord spoke to Israel in the pages of the Old Testament are promises that count towards us as well. All of the promises that find their yes and amen in Jesus are God's promises, not just to Old Testament Jews, not just to the nation of Israel, but their promises made to us As well. And so, is is the unbelief of so many Jews evidence that the Word of God has failed? Absolutely not. It was always God's purpose to save a remnant of Israel, and it, it was always God's purpose from the very beginning to also draw in Gentiles as well. And He supports this with passages from the prophet Hosea and the prophet Isaiah. We don't have time to get into the weeds of this, but he he first argues using the, the prophet Hosea. He says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call Beloved. And in that very place where I said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Hosea here is referring to the northern kingdom of Israel. And what the Lord is doing here is he's disowning these as his people. He's saying, You were once my people. You are no longer my people. You don't belong to me. I disown you. But what does he do? He turns around and those who are no longer his people, those whom he has disowned, those whom he has cut off, he calls sons of the living God. If he can welcome in, not my people, northern kingdom of Israel, he can welcome in, not my people, Gentiles, the nations. Then he moves to Israel to argue that for the inclusion of, of only a remnant of Israel and true Israel. This is a little more straightforward. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The Lord in his mercy could have wiped out all of Israel. The plan was never to save all of Israel, but rather in his unconditional mercy to save some. two pillars church that's a lot that's a lot i don't know if you're tired but i'm tired i need to go take a worshipful nap but if i were to summarize all of this this is how i would do it that god is faithful and in sovereign control of the salvation of his people very brief application. And this is why gospel communities can be so important around here because we're gonna hash this out and, and, and things like these in our gospel communities throughout the throughout the week. Number one, trust Christ. If you're here today and you don't belong to him by faith, you might be asking the question, well, Adam, how would I ever know if I'm one of the chosen one of God? How will I ever know if I am one of those elected to be a child of the promise. In the next chapter, chapter 10, we're gonna read, we're gonna hear Paul say, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. This is a real promise. This is a real and true offer. And should you grab hold of it it by faith, then you will prove yourself to be one of the elected, one of the chosen, one of the beloved children of God. So trust in him. Repent and and believe in him. Secondly, humility and security. If you're a Christian, the message here is clear. God chose you. You didn't choose him this should give us a a great sense of humility before God and before our fellow man, Christian or not. Why? Because God didn't owe us anything. How how could we put him in our debt? Similarly. Honestly, like, what bragging rights do we have over another person, another Christian, another non-Christian? If, if, like Jacob and Esau, he, he chose us before the foundation of the world, before we had done other, either good or bad. But look, it should also fill us with great confidence. Great confidence. Christian, God chose you. He chose you. In love, he chose you. And praise God, it wasn't because of anything that you had done or anything that he knew you would do or wouldn't do. He chose you because he chose you. He chose you according to the purpose of his election. He chose you in love. And because God chose you, you are secure in Christ. Thirdly, evangelism, mission. What a wonderful day to to hear from the Cordells and what the Lord is doing through the International Student Fellowship Ministry on campus. Look, the, if, if what this passage says is true is true, then the pressure isn't on you to persuade someone or to woo someone or to strong arm someone, or to trick someone, or to bait and switch someone, or to emotionally manipulate someone into the kingdom. God does the electing, God does the choosing, God does the heart work. You merely get to be the messenger of the good news of the gospel. And look, you and I can handle that burden. You and I can handle that burden because look, the pressure isn't on us. Finally, on wonder. On wonder at the Lord's power, at his glory. We should be filled with on wonder at his sovereign purposes, at his undeserved mercy and grace we could go on and on and on and on brothers and sisters we should be filled with awe and wonder and worship because all the promises of god all the promises of god made to god's people throughout the ages which find their yes in amen in jesus all of them belong to us by faith. Even us Gentiles. True Israel. Abraham's offspring. God's beloved children of the promise. God's elect. Vessels of mercy. And we know, don't we? That the word of his promise never fails. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before you today and we confess that you are God and we are not. We are merely your chosen. Lord, we praise you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.